0: Well, again, welcome. So glad that you have chosen to join us and to worship with us. Um, You heard from the words of of Bill, Pastor Bill, on the the video a few moments ago. We're reading Gospel of John together. We are uh, continuing to move forward and open here. Um, And this morning we reach uh, quite a bit of a climax as we look at Jesus' death and crucifixion. Why don't we uh, pray together? As we prepare our hearts um, to gather around this ancient story. Gracious Father, um, Lord Jesus, uh, we pray that as we come to you this morning, um, that you would speak to us in fresh ways, even from an old, old, and for many of us, very familiar story. God, I pray that we would never tire of the fact that you, through your Son, came and died on the cross for our sins, offering us life and forgiveness. God, I pray that you would continue to make that fresh in us. Help us to rejoice. Help us to worship. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would use these truths to encourage us, to convict us, to challenge us, and to help us become more and more the people that you have created us to be. And Lord Jesus, we thank you We praise you and we love you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what a failure, right? I mean, what what a colossal disappointment, uh, an incredible tragedy. Jesus, the the teacher, Jesus, the, the revolutionary, Jesus, the misunderstood leader, dies alone abandoned, like a common criminal. I mean, by just about any definition you can find, Jesus was a failure. I mean, that's what it seems like, right? And the trouble is, I mean, if we're honest, we're so used to this story that we actually forget how incredibly shocking it is. We actually expect Messiahs to die, Right? We're just so conditioned to it. This this story, it's kind of like the movie that you've seen a thousand times now, that the first time you watched it, I mean, it was shocking that the twist ending, that the hero actually dies. But now when we watch it again, it's just sort of, yeah, okay, well, of course, that's what happens. We know it, we see it, we expect it, and, and it's just sort of normal to us, isn't it? I mean, even even the cross itself, we we decorate our homes and our churches and our bodies with the most brutal form of torture and execution ever invented. I mean, why not just hang an electric chair back there Or, or wear a noose for a necklace? And no matter who you are, most of us would say that what happened to this first century Nazarene was a tragedy. A terrible injustice, that that Jesus in a long line of good people snuffed out by by society or by individuals, I mean, people like Julius Caesar or William Wallace or Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King, Jesus just is in that line. Because if you if you know Jesus' teaching and, and you know his 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 lifestyle, you know that this was a bad day for humanity. An injustice. But I'd like to take it a little bit further than that. This wasn't just a bad day. This was the worst day the world has ever known. The most horrible tragedy, the greatest injustice, the deepest shame. What happened? I mean, the most innocent person who's ever lived, murdered in the most brutal fashion. Compare any bad day to this day, and this day wins. But was it a mistake? Was it just a failure? God's big oops. Or or is there more? And and if there's more, then then what? What What does it all mean? Well, according to the Gospel of John, the way he tells this story, the worst day required the best planning. Making even the worst day the greatest day. Because everything we've been doing up, up to this point, this year together as a church, it's all been leading to this day, right? I mean, if you've been reading along with us or on Sundays, going through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it all points to this one terrible, horrible, wonderful moment. The death of the Son of God, the one who came. It, it's all just right here. And, and for some of us, right, again, we're, we're, it's, we're so familiarized with this story some of you have already probably tuned me out okay right wake up come back because i do think the way john looks at this and the angle we're going to look at it together this morning i think it is fresh for many of us we're going to look at it that that shows the incredible precision the deliberateness the the planning that went in even to the worst day That it wasn't a mistake it wasn't a failure And John, he shows it to us that the hour had to come, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, and the plan had to be finished. The worst day required the best planning. Well, let's begin reading John chapter 19, we'll begin in in verse 16. John tells us, so they took Jesus... And he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the Place of a Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Okay, so think about it. At at this point in the story, okay, if you're at all familiar with the narrative or we we need to catch each other up here, uh, at at this point, Jesus has already been uh, betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter and abandoned by everybody else. He's already gone through his his mockery of a trial. I mean, what a sham that was. He's been beaten, whipped, spit upon. He's been mocked by, by the soldiers, right, as a, as a false king. They, they put a robe on him. They put a crown of thorns smashed onto his head, mocking him. You're, you're the king, aren't you? And essentially, that's kind of what Pilate is doing here in this section with the sign, the, the king of the Jews. He's I'm assuming what's going on in Pilate's mind is he, he felt like his hand was forced into crucifying Jesus in some ways. And so he wants to stick it back at the Jews to say, well, this is what I do with your king. If I'm going to kill this person, I'm going to make a mockery of him and you in the midst of it. It's just sort of a power play to kind of make, make this whole thing just a, a spectacle against Jesus. And so he's, he's carried his cross I mean, imagine that, right? The the, the weight of carrying what you know you're soon to be nailed to, the very last act you will ever do, carrying it away. You know, carrying it against his his probably already uh, whipped, raw shoulders, right? The splintered wood as he goes up, the the, the wood digging into his flesh already. He's a bloody mess. And then, of course, there's the nails, right? Long, long. Dull nails hammered through, it would have gone through his his wrist and through his ankles, right? Crushing bone, piercing muscles, tearing ligaments, the pounding metal ripping through flesh. That's the easy part. Because then comes the hanging, right? Just, Just sort of being suspended there, high in the air, the entire weight of your body being held up by just a few nails through your own body, like the the scrape of metal against bone. And and in most circumstances, it it would take the victim days sometimes, certainly hours to die, at least hours just hanging there. The cause of death was typically suffocation, it wasn't like bleeding to death or anything quite so simple as that. The victim would typically suffocate. Because if, if your weight is, is held up like this, right, it puts too much pressure on your lungs. and you, so, you, so you can't breathe unless you stand up on the nail through your ankle to, to gasp just a little bit of breath. And then the pain shoots through your legs so you have to slump back down. And then, of course, you need another breath a few seconds later. And so the victim would stand and then slump and then stand and then slump and then stand and then slump for hours and hours and hours until there was just no energy left and even oxygen isn't worth that much trouble. And by that point, death would just be welcomed. It's kind of amazing the level of cruelty we humans are capable of inventing, isn't it? Terrible, yes, but a mistake. Well, Jesus didn't think so. I mean, I'm sure Jesus could have been wrong, theoretically. And certainly Jesus is accused of all kinds of, of things, but clearly Jesus didn't think this was a mistake. He didn't think he was just a good teacher or a clever miracle worker or an inspiration for the masses or someone who came to just give a few morals or to start a revolution even. You see, Jesus knew, and John makes it so clear, Jesus knew this hour had to come. And we, we talked about it last week a little bit, but it's all over the place in John. If you remember last week, we looked at Jesus turning, turning water to wine, his, his very first miracle in, in his public ministry, right? Now three years have, have gone by, but back then, right, he said to his mom, my hour has not yet come. The hour refers to this moment of crucifixion, of of, of death. It hadn't come then, but Jesus, even then in that moment, three years previous, he knew that it would. And and other examples here, in in John 7 uh, and John 8 as well, it's two separate stories, but the people, they try to to arrest Jesus, they they come to get him, but, but they can't. Still, his hour hasn't come, John tells us. But then in John chapter 12, Well, the hour has come, it's time, and and there in John 12, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? This is why I'm here, he's saying. But for this purpose, he says, I have come to this hour. I mean, he's saying everything has pointed to this moment. This is the very reason I'm here. And then another place, John, John 13, as Jesus breaks bread for the last time with his disciples, John tells us that it was when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world. Or again, in, in chapter 16, when Jesus' friends all abandoned him, Jesus says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me all alone. Or again in 17, when Jesus is praying to his father, he he says to his father, I have finished the work that you have given me to do. And then he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, he says. Jesus Wasn't surprised. Jesus was absolutely resolute in his determination. Yes, yes, it was absolutely terrible. Yes, it was the darkest day, and yet Jesus knew this hour would come, and he embraces it. It's no failure. No mistake. The worst day required the best planning, and Jesus was in on it the whole time. Part of the planning, even from the very beginning. Even before time began. Because that's, that's not all that, that John tells us. Yes, the, the hour had to come, but that's not, that's not it for, for John. It's not just that, that Jesus knew that this moment was coming. It was also that the scriptures had to be fulfilled. That this, this wasn't something merely that, that Jesus had been planning by himself, right? His, his secret Messiah plan to, to throw everybody off. This is something the scriptures had testified to, that it was, it was all over the place. Now, many of you know that I tend to be a little bit of a, of a planner, probably to a fault, actually, and um, Kelly and I were actually in the midst of uh, one of those really terrible home projects. I have completely gutted our master bathroom, um, completely gutted it, and now becomes the, the fun process like, you know, all the king's horses and all the king's men trying to put the impossible thing back together again. And, and, and what I lack in skill, because uh, I'm terrible at these things, what I lack in skill, I make up for in excessive and obsessive planning, Okay. Just constantly overthinking it, like, keeps me up, and I'm, I mean, it's, I'm, I kind of become a crazy person. In fact, I often, when I have a project like this, I begin using the walls as my master plan, okay? And so, there, you know, I end up writing lists and drawing diagrams and, you know, measurements and all, it just kind of looks like a crazy person lives there, honestly, Okay? Uh, but it, it's my plan. It, it may seem a little bit disorganized, but it makes sense to me, and, and I can I can follow it, right? I, it's, it's all right there for me, and in some ways, I mean, even though God is the ultimate planner, his plan is always perfect. He's always on top of it. He knows what's going on. In some ways, it kind of feels that way sometimes when we look at the scriptures, right, of God's plan, that it's It doesn't fit our expectations. It seems a little bit random or or out of place. And it's hard to get our minds around it. At first glance, God's plan, the scriptures, can seem confusing to us. And yet it's all right here. And and John doesn't want us to miss it. Because look how how the story continues in 1923. So back in our chapter, chapter 19, verse 23. Because this was the executioner's favorite part, okay, of the story um they would divide up the victim's possessions it's kind of like a tip for a job well done Um, and they couldn't decide here who would get his tunic or, or robe and so they cast lots kind of like a little game of dice to see who would get it and if you're familiar with the story you know that that's in there and it's sort of like well yeah okay it says that but if you think about it who really cares what they did with his bloody clothes right I mean, seriously, why, why would John waste his time and hours seemingly by putting that in here, that little detail? Well, look what John says in verse 24. It says, So they said to one another, the, the soldiers, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And then John tells us why that's important. He says, This was to fulfill the scriptures, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This was to fulfill the scripture, which is a really important phrase for John. He uses it a ton all over the place. And and right here, this casting lots, the the scripture that John is referring to, it's Psalm 22. Um, Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before this uh, by King David, uh, and it contains all kinds of interesting phrases. It starts off with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, written, written a thousand years before this. And, and if you're familiar with this story, the other gospel writers would, would point out how Jesus cries that out from the cross, right? In, in his last moments, that he quotes those same words. And, and honestly, if you think about it, I mean, as much as the brutal physical experience of pain must have been that we talked about, this was the worst part, right? The abandonment of God. That it wasn't just the, the weight of his body, causing him pain. It was the weight of our sins, right, that that caused God to pour out his wrath on Jesus, to feel and to be forsaken by his Father. But the psalm continues, Psalm 22. Let me read, read a little bit of it. Psalm 22 says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Which again, in some of the other gospel writers, that's exactly what the, the passers-by scream out at Jesus as he hangs there. Or, or verse 14 of Psalm 22, it says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint and, and crucifixion would have done that. Or verse 15, it says, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my mouth or to my jaws. And in just a moment, Jesus is going to say, I thirst. Or, or verse 16, it says, they have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Again, all of that written a thousand years earlier. It was all part of the plan. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. And, and again, this is just one example, right? This Psalm 22 to, to walk through, but... But John uses this phrase all over the place. In John 12, for example, the disbelief of Israel was a fulfillment of Isaiah. In John 13 and 17, the betrayal of Judas was a fulfillment of Psalm 41. In John 15, the fact that Jesus was universally hated was a prediction of Psalm 35, Psalm 69, and Isaiah 53. And in John 18, crucifixion was a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 21 uh, and Isaiah 53. We looked at Isaiah 53 a few months ago. Um, right? One of the phrases from there is, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and with his wounds we are healed. And then four times in John 19, our, our chapter this morning, four times John uses this phrase. As he describes his death, we looked at two of them, right? The casting of the lots, Jesus' thirst from Psalm 22. But even the specific manner of his death from Exodus 12, Numbers 9, Psalm 34, Zechariah 12, Isaiah 53. So what, right? Listen, I mean, you may doubt that Jesus' death had any special meaning, okay? Okay. And you may certainly doubt that it, that it accomplished anything as magnificent as life or forgiveness, that it, that it was important at all. I mean, of course, you can doubt those things. But it's really hard to doubt that this is the very centerpiece of this book, the very, the very climax of all that is happening, the grand story that God is telling from the very beginning that we together grab onto. Jesus' death, according to this book, was not an accident. God doesn't make mistakes. The the worst day required the best planning. This hour had to come. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. And the plan had to be finished. So as the story continues, you know, they, they divide up his clothes. As Jesus hangs there, slowly dying. And then John writes, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Nobody takes Jesus' life. Jesus gives his life. And even just, if you think about it, what a contrast from last week's story, right? Water to wine. Jesus at a party making sweet wine, delightful wine for the guests. And now he drinks the bitter wine moments before his death. Or even if you think about the way John started his gospel, right? He, he started with, with these words. He wrote, in the beginning was the word, referring to Jesus. And the word was God, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In the beginning is how it begins in John. And now at this moment, Jesus cries out, it is finished. It was all moving somewhere, accomplishing something. And now Jesus says, It's done. The dead son of God. the God who made the mountains and the trees, who invented laughter, who spoke life into existence with a word. God himself. Death overtook him, and he breathed his last. The worst day. And I don't want us to rush through this. Because that's, that's my tendency, right? Is to, to rush through the brutality of this story. To get to the, the, the happy so what of it all, right? We, we, we long to get there and, and we, we will get there in a minute. But we need to let this well-planned tragedy soak in. So yes, there's more to talk about, okay? The sermon's not over Patrick is going to come up and, and, and sing a song for us just to sort of allow us to, to listen and to reflect on this, on this moment. And then we're going to have some time just to sit quietly. Um, the community tables are set up. If, if, you, if that helps you remember to come and, and take the bread and cup, you're welcome to do so. There won't be any servers there. You'll have time to do that. But uh, if, if not, then sit and pray and, and reflect on these things just to take a few minutes to let this moment sink in. And even as you think about communion, remember, nobody nobody takes his life. Jesus freely gives it. we don't just take communion. We receive it as the gift that it is that Jesus drank that bitter cup so that we could drink the sweet cup of redemption. So again, we'll listen to a song. We'll sit quietly. If communion helps you in this moment to remember, then come. If not, just sit and pray and reflect. But whatever you do, just don't hurry through the worst day.
1: sacred head now wounded, with grief and shame way down now scorned.
0: is certainly essential um, to the Christian life, uh, and we remember the worst day. As we, as we do, it, it fuels life today um, and gives us hope for tomorrow, because with, with great planning that extends well into eternity past, with clear deliberation and intention, the Son of God dies well, what does it all mean? Well, certainly there are lots of implications, lots of things that we could talk about here. But there are three things in particular from, from John, from the way that, that he tells this story that just, that just screams out at me from this story, that this story means God's love never fails. His salvation never falls short. And his plan never goes wrong. Because the worst day is also the best day. God's love never fails. I mean, God doesn't just sort of haphazardly throw together our redemption and then twist his son's arm to carry it out. Just think. This was planned for you from the beginning predicted throughout all the scriptures and gladly stepped into by God himself what does that say about God's love even if you think back to the the garden of Eden right the the original sin the first temptation I mean, what was it really about right the whole the whole fruit and tree thing I mean the serpent comes to to Eve and and what does she convince Eve? what does he convince Eve God's not really that good What do you mean you can't eat from all the trees in this garden? God doesn't have his best out for you. He's not looking out for you. He's, He's looking out for himself. He doesn't care about you. And so she believed that lie, and that lie has crept into every one of our hearts, and together we all say, does God really love me? And every sin after has followed the exact same pattern. Every sin of mine, it comes down to this. God, do I really believe that you love me? Because God, if you love me, I begin to think, right? Then then this would be okay. You would say that this is fine in my life, and I I know better than you, God, or maybe not just with, with the sin, but some tragedy, right? Comes into our lives and we think, God, if you really loved me, how could you possibly let that happen to me? I mean, there are so many things about God that are easy to doubt. But if there is one thing we no longer have any right to doubt, it's this. God's love never fails. I mean, I have, I have tons of questions for God, tons of, of things that I want answered, right? You probably do too, but the, the question of God's love for me, for you, it's been forever answered on the cross. I mean, just look how much he loves you. so evident there as he died for us. Second, God's salvation never falls short. It is finished means it is finished. Jesus died because that was the consequence of our, of our rebellion against God. We had committed treason, and we deserved death. But only Jesus, only the Son of God, God himself, only he would have the power to absorb the sins of all of humanity. I mean, I, I couldn't die for everybody's sins. You couldn't die. But, but Jesus did that for us, and he said it is finished. We trust in him. Salvation is ours. And yet, how many of us actually believe, really, that Jesus finished that work. I mean, just, just think about that. If, for example, if you're a Christian and you struggle with forgiveness, for example, forgiving yourself, maybe, forgiving someone else, then you really don't believe it's finished. Not, not for those sins, whether it's your own sins or the sins of somebody else, you you don't really believe that it was enough. Or or if you think that God is somehow out to get you, you're a follower of Jesus, but you've you've made some mistakes and you're, you're thinking in your mind, well, now I've got to watch out. God is going to even the score, right? We think that sometimes, don't we? But if you are one of his, God doesn't have an ounce of condemnation left for you, not a drop of wrath. Because Jesus said, it is finished. I have taken it all. Or if you, if you struggle to, to think, you know, I've got to clean myself up to, to come to God, to, to pray to him or to be with him. I've got to say the right words or do the right things or, or put on the right face. Essentially, you don't believe that it's finished. Or even, even the way we approach others, right? We do that. We're desperate for other people's approval, their acceptance of us. And when we long, when we're obsessed with what other people think about us, what we're really saying is, I don't believe it was finished. I don't believe that that God's acceptance of me is enough. I've got to have all these other people to accept me. I've got to have all these other things in my life. We, We don't believe that it was actually finished. I mean, imagine for a moment if we actually, truly, deeply within embrace those three little words it is finished. I mean, this finished means forgiveness is real, justice is satisfied, reconciliation has been obtained, and wholeness, purpose, life has been restored for us. And the confirmation that it is finished, that Jesus actually meant what he said, and that, that it is true is next week, the resurrection, that Jesus actually rose from the dead, the ultimate confirmation of what he's accomplished. And finally, the cross this story, John's story of the cross, means that God's plan never goes wrong. Because if God can use the worst day and, and the history of the world, right? The, the greatest tragedy, the most shameful event, if God can use crucifixion to bring about our highest joy, the climax of all of history, if God can use that, what can't he use? in your life and mine? What is, what is he limited? If he can use this, what can't he use in our lives? I mean, every bad day that you possibly could have. I mean, we can always compare it back to, to this day. There is no worse day that you or I could ever have that is worse than this day because this is the day that Jesus died and every other day after he lives. And any day that Jesus lives, there's hope for us. In Acts chapter 2, for example, this is Peter's very first sermon. He declares, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Nothing surprises him. Nothing catches him off guard. God's plan never goes wrong. I mean, the cross is clear evidence, proof, right, that God actually meant what he said, that he can take and, and make beauty out of ashes and joy out of despair and hope out of, out of pain, that he actually can do that, bring, bring life out of death. No matter your experience, no matter what, if God can use the cross what can't he use for our good? Because even the worst day required the best planning. And if God's love never fails, I mean, that, that means we can stop demanding love from others and actually give love instead. If, if salvation, if God's salvation never falls short, instead of trying to prove ourselves or to save ourselves, we can actually worship the one who saves. And if God's plan never goes wrong, we can experience peace Even in the midst of tremendous heartache. Sure, it may look as if everything fell apart on that day. The greatest tragedy, the biggest mistake, an absolute failure. All for our good, all for His glory, the worst, best day. Friends, what do we possibly lack? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, that you would do this for me. And how tired I get of the story. How quickly I ignore it. Yet you continue to forgive. And so, Lord Jesus, we come to you, we praise you, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf, for the life that you offer, the way that you have opened God's love to us, unlike we could even possibly imagine, the way that we can trust and know that it truly is finished. And with that, there is rest and confidence. And that with you, your plan is good. Lord Jesus, help us to trust you. Help us to rely on you. And we ask these things for your great glory. Amen.